Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. Good morning, everyone. Hopefully you all enjoyed the Christmas music as much as I did. And it uh, certainly is festive to get us all in the, the holiday mood. And uh, we're just delighted that you're with us today. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce. And uh, it's been quite a year. 2021 has been quite a year with uh, we've been able to do 15 of these Teletown Hall Power Hours, and I want to thank each of you for joining in when you have, as, all as, as well as giving a, a shout out to our partners at the Beaufort County Channel, uh, the town of Hilton Head Island, as well as the town of Bluffton. You know, we think it's important to continue to uh, convene and convey, as well as connect our community with unfiltered information, and we plan on doing that in 2022 as well. We'll be back uh, with you on January 12th for our next Teletown Hall, and hope you'll mark your calendars for it right now. Well, we're only uh, 10 days away from Christmas, and so I want to encourage everyone to shop local. And you know, uh, when we have Tom Sullivan from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce with us, he's always great to share statistics and facts with us. And I thought it'd be good just to share one uh, one note that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, in a recent survey, uh, what they came back with and, and showing that small businesses are continuing to uh, gain confidence the uh, two challenges that they're seeing that small business is seeing is the inflation as well as the uh, lack of workers as the chief obstacles. So as, as we go, we have nine shopping days left, and I encourage each of you to get out and support our local businesses with all of your uh, holiday shopping. You know, we have a, a stellar lineup today, and uh, uh, we're going to work through those, and then we'll have a special guest at the end. And I thought as we've had others on talking about supply chain issues as we're getting closer to Christmas, that it'd be important for us to get another update on how this, uh, how this gentleman's handling supply chain issues. So today, uh, I want to introduce you to uh, Sandy Gillis. She'll be our first speaker and, and uh, she's been with the, at the forefront of, of giving and with the low country and helping those as need, in need. And Sandy and has been with the has been the executive director of Deepwell since 2018, and before that, she was served on the board of directors for uh, five years. She's certainly no stranger to the Low Country, and uh, has done great things. and And Deepwell has been around since 1973. and And Sandy, in this time of need and busy time for you and Deepwell, thought it'd be great for you to share, give us an update, and how uh, the community can further help. And thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate this kickoff spot. We are expecting the parents of 724 Hilton Head children to be with us this week in our Santa shop. So as my grandmother used to say, we are busier than a one-armed paper hanger. So thank you so much for this leadoff spot. And I come today bringing good news, I think. Um, as far as aid requests here at Deepwell, we are in infinitely better shape than we were this time last year. Um, the, the number of people we've assisted with an emergency rent or mortgage payment to keep them safe in their homes or with emergency utility payments, all of those are down substantially from 2020. So there's the good news. Um, bad news is we are still about 50% ahead of where we would have been with those kind of aid requests pre-pandemic in 2019. Um, so we certainly are still at elevated levels of assistance, but in a much, much better place than we were this time last year. Um, and the great thing about it is the community has really just wrapped their arms around us this year. 
We have had um, wonderful food donations of non-perishable food items that's keeping our pantry going. That's especially important um, in the last 30 to 60 days. Um, we have seen food prices, just like everyone out there, has really bumped up um, the price of gasoline and fuel for folks to get to work is high. And that does really impact our clients, which are some of our area's most vulnerable um, residents it really does spank them pretty hard. So community has been great to support us. We, we have plenty of toys for those 724 children coming to see us this week um, for the Santa shop. And fortunately, we are, we are in great shape with food stuff um, that we need. We did see in the month of November, um, people asking if they could come make a visit to our food pantry. We were up 65% in November, from October to November. Um, it has calmed down a little bit in December, perhaps as people adjusted their grocery budgets, um, but we, we certainly will continue to be happy to get any food donations the community has in the coming months. Um, the one crazy little wrinkle that happened, um, every year at Thanksgiving, we deliver, we, we actually coordinated 275 Thanksgiving dinner deliveries that fed about 1,400 people and for Christmas, we're actually tracking to do even more dinners. Um, and we had a little hiccup. You mentioned supply chain issues. Um, uh, our, our great vendor that helps us with our Christmas hams every year called us in a panic on Friday to say, I'm not going to be able to get you the 110 hams you ordered for Christmas dinners. Um, but we put a little note out on social media and God bless the community again with We've got hams walking in the door um, as we speak. Um, we probably need another 25 or 30, and then we'll have all of our families covered. Um, but that was kind of our little rude wake-up call to supply chain issues. But again, so far the community has responded beautifully and we're very grateful for the help and support. Um, that was my main message today. The good news is things are getting better. The bad news is we're still not back to where we were pre-pandemic, um, but we've got some great things going on with our holiday programming, and we're very grateful and appreciative to the community for all the support and the love you've shown to Deepwell and our families during 2021. Well, Sandy, thank you so much, and uh, certainly a, a shout out to you, your volunteers and board of directors. And we do have uh, Michael, we have a question from Michael, and Michael was asking the best way to donate to Deep Well. What would you suggest? Well, if you have a ham that you'd like to bring us, we need it in the next two days. We're scheduled to do our Christmas deliveries this coming Sunday to make sure everybody has what they need ahead of the holiday. Um, that's one way you could help. Um, and really financial donations give us the most flexibility to direct your gift to wherever it is most needed. Um, you can just drop a check in the mail where Deepwell Project PO Box 5543, and that's Hilton Head 29938. It's also really easy. We're one click away. You can go to our website. Um, that's deepwellproject.org. Uh, and you can make a credit card donation there. Um, again, very grateful for all the help that we've already received and, and, and appreciate you asking that. And, and one, one last question, where, uh, for those who don't know where you're located and wanted to drop off a ham, where would they deliver that to today? 
Um, that would go to 80 Capitol Drive, which is a little street right off Lega Mutton, close to between Marshland Road and the Indigo Run traffic circle. So put 80 Capitol Drive into your GPS and it'll bring you right here. I would recommend because of all the activity in our parking lot with the Santa shop, if you wanted to drop that cam off um, in the morning hours, anytime between nine and 12 noon, today, Thursday, or Friday, um, it will be much more accessible in our parking lot. The Santa shop runs from about 12 noon to 6 p.m. And it kind of looks like a zoo in the parking lot in the afternoon hours. So morning would definitely be the best drop off time. All right, Sandy. Well, thank you for being with us. And again, thanks to you, your volunteers, your board uh, for all that you do, not only during the holidays, but each and every day uh, here in the Low Country. Thank you so much. We appreciate the support. All right. That was Sandy Gillis, Executive Director of the Deep Well Project. And uh, we just appreciate all that they, they do on a daily basis. I want to encourage you to continue to send your questions in, put those in the chat box, and uh, we'll be able to ask those. And I know uh, each time we get lots of questions, many times we can't answer them all, but uh, please send those in. We're going to take a look at healthcare on the local level now, and we're here to uh, here to help us with that is the market CEO for Hilton Head Regional Health Care System, and that's uh, our friend Joel Taylor. Joel, welcome, and tell us what's uh, what's new at the hospital. Certainly, thank you, Bill, for the opportunity. Um, pleased to be with everyone this morning. Uh, hopefully, uh, I will continue the good news that that Sandy uh, Sandy shared in terms of what things look like locally for our healthcare environment. I'm pleased to report from a COVID standpoint, uh, we have four patients in house across our two hospitals, and that's been that's been the norm for about five weeks. Um, you know, if you look back, our our peak was back in September in terms of inpatient COVID patients at 53 in early September. So a dramatic decline, especially in the last five weeks. Um, I'm, I'm pleased uh, that this uh, current state is holding and hopeful that it will through the holiday season. Uh, I will put the plug in uh, just uh, kind of the public health announcement. Uh, please, if, if you have gatherings over the holiday period and you're not feeling well, uh, make the decision to stay home, certainly wear a mask um, when in close proximity. But overall, we are in much better shape today than we were the last time we got together. Across the health system, uh, we continue to be a vibrant and, uh, and thriving uh, health system and really have seen a resurgence in the number of elective procedures that we're doing. We have doctors and nurses and staff uh, here and ready to take care of anybody that walks in our emergency department and then any scheduled surgery that is needed, we are, we are here to serve the community. I too, like Sandy said, so appreciate the support in what was a very trying 2021, uh, but, but we felt it as a, as a healthcare community. So we are in good shape. I'm excited to hear what uh, Dr. Kelly uh, shares with us later this morning, um, but locally we are in really good shape. So thank you again for the opportunity, Bill, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Okay, Joel, thank you. And uh, we do have a couple questions. The first is coming from Melinda. And Melinda is asking if you're currently monitoring the Omicron uh, variant, or is that something that's uh, the responsibility of DHEC? That DHEC handles that for us um, at the moment. And so we kind of take our cues from them. All right, next question is coming from Sam. 
and Sam is asking what the visitation policies are at uh, both of our local hospitals. Yes, sir. Um, currently, uh, we are back to normal in terms of visitation, except for our emergency, de emergency departments. We are limiting it to one visitor in our ER for each ER patient. Um, outside of extenuating circumstances, if, if it's a pediatric patient or if um, the patient in need is typically in need of assistance, we will allow more than more than one. But on on average, it's one per uh, one visitor per patient. Otherwise, it is back to normal, and thankfully so. We started that uh, in uh, early November. Joel, it's been a, a challenging year, and uh, uh, Melissa was asking how your staff is doing there at the hospital as we get ready to wrap up 2021. Well, I think like everybody, the staff is hopeful, you know, especially this time of year uh, that kind of breeds hope and renewal. I think the staff um, is, is ready to turn the page on this. We're prepared if, if there is another surge, but um, I think the staff, it, it's been an amazing uh, display of teamwork throughout the year. And the staff now is, is really hopeful. I would tell you that's probably the, the best sentiment I can provide. So thank you for asking. Joel, thank you for your time and your leadership uh, in your new role. We're delighted to have you and, and uh, we'll be in touch with you and look forward to having you back on in January. Hopefully with so good, continued good news. Thank you. I like, yes, I hope so. I hope so. All right. Take care. Take care. We're going to shift gears now to uh, look at a uh, broader picture in Beaufort County. And our next speaker has certainly had a, a hand in a front row seat looking at the redistricting here in Beaufort County. And He'll talk about that and much, much more. We're delighted to have the chairman of Beaufort County Council with us, Mr. Joe Passman. Joe, welcome. And uh, we know that your travels have taken you other locations, but thanks for uh, dialing in this morning. Yeah, good morning, everyone. I'm in the chilly northeast where it's only 34 degrees outside right now. <laughs> so uh, lots of good news that's happening around Beaufort County. Uh, so let me start with redistricting. As you know, the census in 2020 has taken place. And so that is why we're having redistricting. Uh, Buford County is now the 10th largest county in the state of South Carolina. We have 187,117 people that we have to distribute across 11 districts. So that means we have to have what they call the one person, one vote theory of equal numbers in each district. And that has been somewhat difficult. The population of Buford County has shifted to the south. Originally, we had five council members in the north and six council members in the south. That population has shifted dramatically. And so we're going to redistrict and probably have seven council members in the south and four in the north. Uh, the three largest district increases were in District 6, and I am in District 6, which is the Sun City uh, unincorporated Buford County area. That has grown dramatically. Uh, I have over 19,000 people in my district. Therefore, I have to, quote unquote, pare down by 2,000. And they're the two Bluffton districts which are District 7 and District 9. And District 7 has 23,000 people and District 9 has 20,000 people. So it's been uh, you know, somewhat difficult 
to do, but we have done that. Uh, we have taken a process process that normally takes nine months, and we're going to do that in four months. Our target is to have the final maps approved by January 24th. We had our first reading on Monday. We'll have the second reading in January, early January, and the third reading at the end of January. This is to allow anybody who wishes to run for either county council or the school board to be able to know what district they're in. So that's the uh, redistricting segment. The other one is we've been preparing for what is happening now for more than a year. For the last two years, County Council has adopted the theory that we have people that live, work, and play in Beaufort County. And the census now has told us clearly where they live. And that's going to help us as we begin to budget and spend money and put our comprehensive plan together. Working. We know where they work. John O'Toole does a great job for the Economic Development Corporation, and we have talked to him about, okay, where do we, where do people work, and where do they want to work? And finally, play. Where do people have the activities throughout the county? Well, we work with the municipalities and our county council on where we have the passive and active parks. So that's been a great deal of time and effort to begin putting together the plans for the future. And now we're dealing with the money end. Um, the CARES Act that was passed, the American Rescue Plan Act last March was passed. Well, we now have money coming to the county. We've received half of it. We're going to get $37.3 million, of which we've already received, received half of it. We put together a task force that had almost 40 people on it. And that task force came up with the ideas of, we wanna focus on people. We, want, we know what the pandemic has done and how do we move forward? How do we help our municipalities? How do we help the people that live, work and play here? And so the first reading was held Monday night. We have a plan to spend all $37.3 million. And you can see that particular plan and all the elements of that plan on our website. So that's working. Uh, the next one is the um, bill for the infrastructure. We know that the state is getting money. I recently was at a conference where the state is laying out some of the plans that are going to affect all of the roads and bridges in the state. We know that uh, uh, in a short period of time, and by state standards, that's about three years, we're going to begin the expansion of I-95. It will begin at the Georgia border and go approximately two to three miles north of the Sun City Exit 8. Uh, it is the most expensive portion of 90 I-95 to expand to three lanes on each side because there are six bridges in that area that must be replaced. Once that is done, they will move up to uh, as far as Yemisee with the next round and then beyond that. So uh, wonderful plans of expanding roads. Um, the other thing that's going on is we're beginning our budget process and we're taking into account 
what we have to do with our comp plan and how we have to do things as we move forward. So that's a snippet of what's going on. There are just so many things. It's probably easier for me to have you ask questions and I can follow up with that. So thanks, Bill. All right, Joe, thank you so much. Our, our first question is coming from Mary and Mary is asking with the American Rescue Plans, if there any of that funding will go to help uh, the renovation at Hilton Head Island Airport. Um, yes, there, there are pockets of money for the airport. We've already have money set aside. Uh, the state is going to be kicking in money uh, with the infrastructure bill. There should be enough money for us to complete what we believe is going to be a $50 million renovation of the airport. All right. Thank you for that. Alex is, Alex is asking how uh, to submit thoughts on regarding the redistricting. How can people submit that? Uh, yes, uh, you can. Uh, on the website, they will be able to have uh, input there. But certainly, if there is no other place, um, uh, Kelly will put up my um, uh, email address, which is jpassman at bcgov.net. Um, and in the redistricting process, everybody has to understand there were strict rules and regulations that we have to follow. follow. There are specifically eight component parts. You know, you, I said about the one person, one vote, we have to have equal numbers of individuals. We have done that. Uh, we've held three sessions in the north, in the center, and on Hilton Head Island to get input from the public already. We've come up with um, an alternative, preferred alternative plan called 3A, which meets all of the goals and, and processes that we had to do for the redistricting. But uh, we still have three meetings. We have the, um, it, it is an ordinance, so there's three hearings and a public hearing on that. So there's still time for public input on that. Thank you for that, Joe. Uh, the next question is coming from Alex, and Alex is asking if you know what percentage of the population currently resides in southern Beaufort County. Uh, the vast majority of the population is in southern Beaufort County. We have 187,000 residents, and we have approximately um, 120,000 are in the south, and 67 are in the north. All right. Thank you. Your next question is coming from Lance, and Lance is asking when you uh, when it's thought that the first phase of the I ninety five expansion will be completed. The first phase is probably going to be completed around twenty twenty seven. They hope to have construction beginning on I ninety five somewhere in the late twenty twenty three time frame and complete it by 2027. Uh, and just so you know, uh, that will also include the fact that they will be putting in the new exit three, which has to be incorporated when you expand I-95. So yeah, it's not going to be easy uh, or uh, you know a quick, but it, it is coming. One more question for you, and Ray is asking how the county is involved in the 278 corridor project. The 278 corridor project consists of actually three entities. It's the state of South Carolina, the county of Beaufort, and Hilton Head Island. We are the 
a lead in this area because the bridges are in the unincorporated section of Buford County. We have signed the appropriate IGA papers for the SIB money to come to Buford County for our section of the bridges. Uh, we have completed the transportation sales tax amount of money that we said we we're going to raise as of December 31st, we will have raised all of the money necessary for not only the bridge project, but the Lady Island and the, the pathway project. So we do have that money. The rest of the money comes from the state and from the um, SIB, the um, State Infrastructure Bank. And so all of that is taking place. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not listening to what is happening on Hilton Head Island and the questions that have been uh, posed. Uh, that is part and parcel of us moving forward. What they call the NEPA process is still undergoing in the design phase. So the actual construction of the bridges probably isn't going to happen for another year and a half. Joe, you're, Joe, you're always a wealth of information and uh, we appreciate you sharing that with us. And thank you for taking time out of your holiday schedule to be with us and, and share this important information with our listeners. So if there's lots of good things happening, I'll be back in January. And I'm <laughs> sure there's gonna be lots of things happening. There will be, we look forward to having you back. All right. Have a great, Merry have a great holiday. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. That was Joe Passman, chairman of the Beaufort County Council. And uh, as I mentioned, always a, a wealth of information. You know, I guess we're working our way through the J's. We've had Joel, we've had Joe, and now we're going to have Dr. Jane Kelly. And uh, we all know that Dr. Kelly is the uh, epidemiologist with DHEC and a, a great friend of the region, a great friend of the state, and uh, also a wealth of information. Dr. Kelly, good morning and welcome back. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. Uh, as usual, I've got a few slides, so hang on a sec as I pull those up. There we go. Um, here is the epi curve, new cases in South Carolina, the state as a whole, and the green line is our seven-day moving average. As you can see, we started to have a little bit of an increase in mid-November. In fact, the week before Thanksgiving, we started to have a little bit of an increase. And I'll tell you, honestly, I thought it would be bigger than this. You know, we expected a surge with the holidays. We expect the surge will increase even further when Omicron hits South Carolina. It probably honestly is here. We just haven't detected it yet, but we'll talk about Omicron. But this is where we sit right now. And it's not just about cases, it's also about what happens to those cases. We have had a small increase in the number of the pr proportion of people, the number and percent of people who have been hospitalized, as well as on a ventilator in the intensive care unit or just admitted to the hospital for oxygen support. Here we've got, I'm going to show you two different ways of calculating incidence rate. Incidence is the number of new cases. You never want to look at just a single day because a single day of testing, of course, can be challenged by all sorts of other things, right? I mean, you know, a single day, maybe it was raining and people didn't go out to get tested. But if you look at this map of South Carolina, we in South Carolina take a longer term view. So this is the two-week cumulative incidents or new cases reported in the past two weeks, including uh, we've separated out 
what uh, Beaufort County is looking like. So Beaufort County at an incidence rate of 139.5 per 100,000, that's considered a moderate amount of circulate, continuing to circulate uh, viral disease. This is how CDC looks at it. They do it a little bit differently. And again, you can see I've, I've tried to outline Beaufort County by CDC's method. They look at just the past week, not two weeks. And from their methodology, it looks like Beaufort County is substantial community spread. And that makes sense to me because we are seeing an uptick post Thanksgiving. We expect that there'll be a continued uptick going through the rest of the winter holidays and we may peak in January, um, but, but we're not helpless. You know, there are things that we can do to try and keep that peak as low as possible, um, even in the face of Omicron. We are in a better position than we were last year. We have way more tools to fight COVID-19. And I would remind you that right now, the Delta variant is still more than 99% of new diagnoses in the United States overall. More than 99% of the new cases are the Delta variant in South Carolina. And we know that while the Delta variant spreads more quickly, we know that vaccine is effective against the Delta variant. What we also know about Omicron is that it spreads even more quickly than Delta. And there have been some concerns about its ability to escape immunity, that vaccine doesn't work as well against Omicron as it does against the other variants. So one of the recommendations that has changed is boosters. You know, remember in the beginning, there were all sorts of complicated recommendations about who should get a booster, who may get a booster. Now the official CDC recommendation is basically Everybody who can get a booster should get a booster. This is a table taken out of uh, the CDC website in which they say, if you receive the Pfizer vaccine, everyone age 18 and older should get a booster. And the reason for that is Omicron. Uh, and when to get the booster? At least six months after your primary vaccination series. And that just has to do with how the immune system works. If you get your booster a little bit earlier, that's okay but it's best if you can get your booster six months after your second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. We do have boosters for teenagers ages 16 and 17, but only with the Pfizer vaccine. So 16 to 17, they can get a Pfizer booster. 18 and older, you can get a Pfizer booster. You could get a Moderna booster. You could get a Janssen booster. You can get any of them. Um, and they are all thought to in greatly increase your immune response to the Omicron variant. If you receive Moderna, you can get any of the three. Again, six months after your primary series. If you are one of the uh, few people, not very many people got the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccine, you should get a booster. Single dose of that vaccine is is efficacious, it's effective in preventing severe disease, but it is much more effective if you get that booster. And for this one, it's a little bit different. The recommendation is get that booster at least two months after you got your Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I know we've talked about this before, but I just wanted to lay this out again because boosters are really important in our defense against the Omicron variant. Here's where we stand with our vaccine dashboard. 
first row is the number of people who have had at least one dose of vaccine. A single dose of vaccine is helpful, but it's not, it's less thought to be less than 50% protection. You really need to get second dose, full vaccination and a booster. The second row are the proportion of people in South Carolina who have completed their vaccinations, not, you know, gotten two doses of Pfizer and Moderna, a little bit more than half of people in South Carolina ages five and up have are fully vaccinated. In terms of Beaufort County specifically, it looks like 68% of residents in Beaufort County are fully vaccinated. So you're doing way better than most other places in the state. I want to step back and talk a little bit about Omicron so that you understand, you know, what worries us and what doesn't worry us. So uh, you, everyone's aware the Delta variant spreads more easily. There is lots of evidence to indicate that Omicron spreads even more easily than Delta. And in this graph, I want to draw your attention to two things. The purple line, the purple line is the Delta variant in South Africa. And you can see it was predominant until all of a sudden in mid-November, it drops down because the that reddish line goes straight up and that's the Omicron variant. It outcompetes the Delta variant. All right, so how worried are we about that? It spreads more easily, but there's no evidence to date that it causes more severe disease. In fact, it may cause milder disease. But nevertheless, the fact that it spreads so quickly means that if you have enough increase in cases, you are going to have an increase in hospitalizations and people with severe disease. In one week, Omicron went from being 0% of new infections in the United States to almost 3%. So it's in most states. As I said, it's probably in South Carolina. We are testing for it. A number of other institutions, MUSC, um, Prisma Health, uh, um, Clemson University, they are all doing genomic sequencing looking for Omicron. We anticipate that when it arrives, we will have a surge in cases. But, but what is the deal when you hear, oh my gosh, it's got 32 mutations. Is it, is, has it changed so much that our, our medications, our antibodies, they won't work against it? I want to put this in perspective. What has changed in Omicron are single changes in amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins Mutations in the spike protein are simply changes in amino acids. You just change out one amino acid for another. What does that mean? Well, it changes the shape of the spike protein. So antibodies might not stick as well to certain spots, but that's only to certain spots. I want to point out there are, sure, in, in yellow, there are some different mutations on this spike protein that changes its shape, but look at all the other places. Where, where antibodies can stick or where T cells, other aspects of your immune system can still fight against the Omicron variant. There are a number of different laboratory studies looking at this right now, looking at what happens to antibody titers. Oh, they really decrease with Omicron compared to other variants. But if you get the booster dose, it increases those neutralizing antibodies to get back at a high level. And I'm gonna use a, a technical term here. In this particular study, 
80% of epitopes. That's the molecular biology term for places where antibodies can attach. 80% of them are not changed by mutations in Omicron. So two doses of vaccine will likely still induce protection against severe disease. That's what they're seeing in South Africa, that vaccination still protects against severe disease. You may have some breakthrough infections, but there's not evidence that people get worse disease. Still, the recommendation is get your booster because it will give you extra protection. Vaccine will protect against the Delta variant, and that's the major one here right now. And there's evidence it will protect against Omicron. Maybe we'll have more breakthrough infections, but we don't expect to have more severe disease. I saw a question in the chat box about remdesivir, and so I thought I should bring up some of the other treatments that we have for prevention for progressing to severe disease. There are two pills that are likely to come out in the next few weeks, the Merck pill, malnupiravir, and the Pfizer pill, Paxlovid. Both of them have efficacy, meaning effectiveness against preventing severe disease. The trick with them though, is you have to start these pills within the first five days of infection. So it, you know it's important to have access to testing, but you know that can also be access to at-home testing. So depending upon your circumstance, you might want to invest in buying an at-home testing kit because it's going to be important that you have an answer right away to get access to these pills. They're not out yet. We're working on distribution plans, but we should have those available within the next few weeks. And to put in a plug for monoclonal antibodies. Again, this is a treatment that is now available. It used to be for only people age 12 and up, but there is a particular monoclonal antibody made by Eli Lilly that is available for all ages, including newborns at high risk. And this is very effective in preventing severe disease. But the, of course, the most effective thing is vaccine and Pfizer vaccine is available for ages five through 11. We've been fielding some questions about international travel. I would just caution, certainly if you're sick, you don't wanna travel. You don't wanna place other people at risk. If you are sick, please don't travel. Um, but if you're planning international travel, make sure you know not only what are the rules for the place to which you are traveling. You know, do you need to get a test within one day of travel? Do you need to quarantine when you arrive at the other site? But also remember, you need to have proof of a negative test within 24 hours to return to the United States. In some countries, that's been a challenge. People have had a, a trouble finding a, a testing center, um, finding a place where they could get tested within 24 hours of travel. You can get an at-home test and bring it with you. And there's a way to do that at-home test via telemedicine so somebody can watch you do the test and document that, yes, you have a negative test so you can travel back. There are a number of other travel recommendations uh, that is on the this, this CDC website. And I would urge you before you travel, make sure you know what the rules are. Let me finish with my email address. We don't answer questions today. Anytime, you're welcome to email me. Kelly, J-M, the number one at dhec.southcarolina.sc.gov. Thanks. Dr. Kelly, thank, thank you so much. And our first question is coming from Tim 
And Tim is asking how accurate home tests are. So uh, home tests are pretty accurate, but they're not as sensitive. So what does that mean? That means if you do a test and it's positive, you can be assured that that's true. They're very specific. If it's positive, you can hang your hat on it. You are definitely have COVID-19. If it's negative, it, uh, it may give you a false negative in 20% of the time, one in five. So if you have symptoms and you get a negative rapid test or at-home test, mm, I wouldn't trust it. I would make sure I got the PCR test. But in, in they're fairly accurate and done, done correctly. So this is it uh, uh, gives you a false negative 20% of the time, one in five. But if it's positive, you can trust it. All right, thank you. David is asking, do most developed nations use the same criteria for recording COVID deaths? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, our criteria are pretty strict, right? Our criteria in the United States is not just, oh, that you have a depth and a positive test. That's not enough. That is called a possible COVID death. It's not a confirmed COVID death unless on the death certificate, the physician has noted that COVID was, uh, it, that this was a COVID associated death. So if somebody, I don't know, went in the hospital for an orthopedic procedure, uh, had no symptoms, got um, tested positive, but the, and then went on to, you know, die during their, you know, orthopedic procedure, that would not be noted as a COVID death. I don't know about the criteria used in other countries. Okay, Mary is asking about telemed. How can you get telemed verification on your test results? And, and this is not true for all tests. Some tests do it, some don't. But if you go to that CDC website, it will bring you to a link to a number of different tests to tell you which test and how to arrange that. So some of them, you can buy a test and there'll be instructions in the test for a website that you can go to so that somebody can observe you. So for example, if you were traveling to, I don't I don't know, a, a country, let's say a vacation in the Caribbean, and you're worried that you might not, testing might not be easily available in that country. That's where you can bring your own test and uh, go online to have it observed because they will not, if you just do an at-home test by yourself, that's not adequate documentation because you could cheat. You know, they need to have documentation that somebody who knows how to do a test observes you doing the test via telemedicine. But I don't know which test that is off the top of my head, but that information is available through the CDC website. Okay, thank you. Kathy is asking, how long is it necessary to wait to get the Pfizer booster after one has COVID? and is still experiencing breathing issues. You know, you can get the booster as soon as you are out of your isolation period, as long as you don't have a fever. And some people do have experience long COVID where they'll have breathing issues for that hang on for weeks or even unfortunately months. There is some evidence that getting the booster shortens the duration of long COVID symptoms. So again, you can get your, your booster after you've had, or you can get vaccinated after you've had COVID as soon as 10 days after you've had COVID, as soon as you complete your isolation period. 
Dr. Kelly, that's uh, going to conclude our questions. And again, uh, to our listeners, she's her email address is there. Any additional questions, please uh, email Dr. Kelly directly. And uh, as many of you have told us that she's so prompt in returning uh, your answer. So, Dr. Kelly, it's been a pleasure as always. We want you to have a, a safe and wonderful holiday and look forward to continuing uh, back with you the first of the year. Thank you so much. All right, Dr. Jane Kelly with DHEC. Our next, uh, our next speaker is one that's uh, really very, very busy at this time of year. And, and I talked a little bit about the labor issues and supply chain issues. And so we thought as we get ready to wrap up 2021 that it would be important if we were able to get some time with the speaker to, uh, to be able to share what his thoughts on this. And so right now, I wish you would give me, help me give a warm welcome to uh, really one of our all-time favorites, and that's Santa Claus. Santa, good after, good morning. I'm not sure where you are, but good morning. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Bill, and everyone gathered in our Southern Beaufort County and even Northern Beaufort County area. You know, supply chains uh, is an interesting situation in the uh, North Pole. I don't have a labor problem that many of you have elsewhere. There are a lot of industrious elves that are really busy year round and uh, our devices and toys and things are made in the USA. So that gives us better control over things. So all in all, we're doing well. I suspect that there are going to be some uh, gifts this year that will be an IOU because the intended uh, device maybe have a computer chip or something that is made in China and is presently sitting in an ocean container on a boat offshore somewhere. So uh, we're, we're doing okay. And all in all, I think we'll do well. And particularly if you shop local, you're going to find things that are already on the shelves available and ready for you to get. Santa, Santa, thank you so much for the, the words of advice there. And uh, uh, we're glad to hear that you're healthy, that the reindeer are healthy, and that uh, you're really not seeing supply chain issues. And again, thanks for reinforcing that message of shopping local. Glad to, Bill. I also want to mention just building on what Dr. Kelly said about COVID, uh, one of the challenges, of course, is that uh, people want to have their pictures taken with Santa. And we enjoy doing that. Uh, actually, we have masks uh, so that my wife and I have had all our shots up through boosters and we have masks just about like that, that uh, we wear when we're talking to the children and uh, doing that outdoors on uh, Friday and Saturday evenings from five to seven, we'll be in the sleigh at Shelter Cove Town Center. And then shortly after 7.30, we'll be at Providence Presbyterian Church for their Christmas walk on Friday and Saturday as well. So we're trying very hard to keep everybody safe from COVID. Santa, thank you so much for being with us. Please give our best to Mrs. Claus. And uh, we look forward to, to maybe stopping by one of those locations before, uh, before we see you on Christmas Eve. Thank you. Merry Christmas, uh, everyone. Merry Christmas, Santa. Always great to see Santa Claus and have Santa with us. And, and uh, what a special time of, a year, of the year 
It is. And as we get ready to uh, to wrap up this 2021 campaign for our Teletown Hall Power Hours, want to give a, a shout out to just a, a few of our staff. We had time. I'd give a shout out to all of them. But Kelly Brunson and Lily Strickland and Kayla Boyder, Haley Martin, Charlie Clark and Connie Kilmar are all really instrumental in helping us to uh, put this power hour on each time that we do it. And so thank you for, for joining us. And on behalf of our board of directors and our professional staff, uh, it's my pleasure to, to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And uh, we're a grateful Chamber of Commerce. We're grateful for you. And we wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts.